Now we uh, get to study God's Word. We uh, get to study God's Word. That is uh, huge. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke. I can't wait. If you have a chance, begin reading uh, Luke chapter 6. It's a sermon of Jesus's, and it's really shocking. I, I, I'm really looking forward to our time in that sermon. But uh, today, we're going to continue to talk a little bit about the church. If you've been uh, coming the past few weeks, you know that we've been thinking a little about the church and especially about how the church functions. And specifically, we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about leadership in the church, which I know uh, maybe seems funny. I, I realize that the whole time I've, I've realized that. Like, do I really need to think this long about leadership uh, in the church? Because obviously there are things in our lives that we participate in uh, that we don't think very deeply about, and we probably don't need to. So like you're, you're part of a little league, you probably don't think very long about the purpose of little league or how its leadership functions. Or, or you go to the grocery store, you're probably not thinking about what's happening behind the scenes or the philosophy of a grocery store. There are lots of things in our lives that we just do, and uh, yet there are other things that you're part of where it's more important that you think about. So like family, uh, you're part of a family, and it's important you think about what a, a family is and what your role in that family is and how the family is supposed to function. Or imagine you're, you're asked to be part of a school board. It's probably a good idea if you're going to be part of a, a school board to think about what's supposed to happen on the school board and what are the different roles and, and what your roles, your role is. And multiply that by like a million if you're part of, of a church, at least in comparison to the school board, no matter how good that is. Because if you're part of a church, without a doubt, that's one of the greatest privileges in your life. Because the church is not an institution that man started. It is one that comes from the very mind of God, and it was bought, started through the work of his son who purchased the church with his own blood. And the church, as a result, is an institution that is very special. It's an organization that God has brought into existence to fill a special purpose in this eternal plan that he is pursuing. So there is a uniqueness to the church. The church is on the planet for a reason, for a particular reason. We are, we're here, we exist to do something that is a key part of this great big eternal plan of God. And what God has called us to do in the church is pretty specific, and it's pretty straightforward. So I know you might go to different churches and hear it put different ways, but the basic mission of the church is pretty simple. Go and make disciples by proclaiming the gospel, depending on the Holy Spirit, and seeing people saved and gathering them into local churches where they can worship God and be discipled and learn to do everything that Jesus commanded. So really, the, the mission isn't complicated. Uh, the privilege is huge, but the mission isn't complicated. But living out that mission as a local church can be. It can get a little complex. It can feel a little complicated. There's a lot to living life together and making disciples together 
as a local church. There's a lot that goes into it. If we, if we just think about obeying the commands that Jesus gave us and what goes into that, I'm not sure we always appreciate how many different things are involved in doing these commands well. I'm the kind of person that I can take for granted all the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes for a church to help people obey Jesus' commands. Like, let's just take a couple of the more obvious ones, the, the more obvious commands as an example. Like preaching the Bible, because that's pretty essential for a local church, obviously, and, and for making disciples. That seems pretty straightforward at first. Like, what do you do? If you're going to be a church that preaches the Bible, you have somebody preach the Bible. What more is there? How is that hard? But we know there is more because preaching can be done poorly or it can be done well. And there are a lot of factors that go into it being done well beyond just having someone stand there and talk. So like you have to identify a preacher, obviously, but not always obviously, actually. Uh, in Africa, it wasn't. There were times I would go to visit a church, and when I got there, they would ask me to preach on the spot, uh, which doesn't usually make for good preaching, honestly. Uh, first, you need to know who is the preacher. And that preacher needs to be trained. And that training needed to happen somewhere. Someone had to think and plan all that. And then that preacher is going to need time to, to study. And if he's going to have time to study, it will help for him to be supported. And if he's going to be supported, there's accounting that has to be done, taxes, insurance. And he's going to need a place to preach and for people to gather. I preached for a few months uh, to a congregation under a tent on the side of a busy street. And uh, let me tell you, it made benefiting from preacher a lot harder while they were like chopping the uh, trees down beside me. Location matters. You need, a, you need a place. And it probably helps if that place is clean. And if there are chairs. And if there's enough light. And how it's lighted or lit. And it's, if it's zoned correctly. And if it has the right permits. And since people drive to church, there's probably going to need to be parking. And if there's parking, it probably helped for people to know where that parking is and not have to walk so far that they're tired out when they get there. And then the people who come, they're going to bring children. And if they're children, you're probably going to want a nursery. And if there's a nursery, there's going to need to be space. And if there's a nursery, there's also going to need to be workers. And if there's workers in America, there needs to be background checks. And if there's children, what are you going to do with them after the service? Because with children, there's noise. And if there's a lot of noise, it's going to be harder for older people to fellowship because they can't hear what other people are saying. And yet the children can't just sit there quiet for hours. And so there needs to be some sort of plan. And I mean, I'm terrible with all these details, actually. You wouldn't believe how long it took me to think of those details, and I didn't even get all of them. But I'm just saying the simplest act of preaching on a regular basis, like the most basic thing we do as a church, preach, is a little more complicated than just showing up and having someone stand up here and start preaching. There's a, a lot of little things around preaching and around the act of preaching that make a difference. And while those little things are not the most important thing, those little things can have an impact and can be done well or not. And how they're done is actually significant. And that's not just true of preaching. That, that's the thing. That's true for most of the other commands as well. Take the command to show hospitality, to love strangers. What are the details that go into a church doing that? 
or, or the command to love each other like a family, or the command to take the gospel out, or the duty to remember the poor, to care for the poor. Obeying those commands doesn't take less thought to do well as a church, as an organization. There, there aren't less details to doing those well than there was when it came to preaching. If anything, there's almost more details, and they're almost more complicated, actually, even simple ones, like uh, loving strangers well. I've been talking to Isaiah about a welcome table because that seems like a, a simple step to showing hospitality, and I can't believe all the details that go into a welcome table. I'm like, wow, I thought it was a table with welcome there, but... Uh, <laughs> There are a lot of details to not just doing it, but to doing it well. Or then maybe a, more, a little more complicated, but say we as a church want to show the love of Christ to those who are in Fullerton. That seems kind of obvious to me. We're the body of Christ. We want to give the world a picture of what it would look like if Christ lived here in Fullerton. And so we want to show his love to those who are vulnerable here in our community. If we're a church and we're to be good at caring for the poor, it's going to require a lot of thought. Like even recently, we were talking about starting a tutoring service. Do you think that is going to require as much planning and as many details as planning a church service? Yeah, it will, if not more. And I know I'm kind of being superficial here. I'm not even diving deeply into all that's required partly because my mind just starts getting tired when people bring up details, but also because I want to get to the point. And the point is that you begin to look at those details that are involved in us obeying some of the most basic commands of the church that God's given to us as a church, and they're important. They're all important. We can, we can do those details well, or we can do them poorly, and it matters. It's going to have a major impact on how effective we are as a church and yet, doing those details well takes a lot of time. And because it takes a lot of time, it can distract us and make it harder for us to do what we're really called to do as a church. It's kind of a funny catch-22, if you think about it. For, for us to do the main things well, like preach and make disciples and love people and reach out to the lost and help the hurting, it's going to require thinking about all these details. If we don't think, we don't plan, we won't do them well. Just like we wouldn't do this church service well if we didn't think and plan. And yet, if we think about all those details, it can become so overwhelming that we don't have time or that we get distracted from doing the main things well. Which is one reason why I want to talk to you about deacons. <laughs> because God has a strategy to help us fulfill our mission as a church. He has a plan. He knows this, all this, and he wants to help us do this well. And I'm convinced that deacons are a key part of the strategy God has designed to help us function effectively as a church. We need elders and we need deacons. We need leadership. It's not the, the final answer, but it's part of the answer. And what do we mean by leadership? We talked about elders the past several weeks, but now I want us to think about deacons because there's actually a lot of confusion about deacons. And so if you'll take your Bible and open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 8 through 13, and I want us to answer four questions, four questions about deacons. Like, first of all, what is a deacon? 
That's an important question. What is a deacon? If you look down at verse 8, Paul says, deacons likewise. And he says likewise because he's just given the instruction for elders in verses 1 through 7. And now he's turning his attention to deacons. And I think to understand what he's going to tell us, we should probably start by making sure we understand what he even meant by the word deacons. Because it's a funny word, deacon. It's not technically an English word. It's what you call a loan word from the Greek. English loves to borrow words from other languages, and we borrowed the word deacon, which is why sometimes there's confusion about what deacons do. For example, I found in some churches that uh, a deacon is thought of as a beginning elder. So there would be someone who you think is going to be an elder someday, maybe, but you're not sure, so you say, let him be a deacon. Other places, he's more of like the pastor's assistant. Historically, when the church started going bad, what happened was uh, people had been giving money to the church because the church has always been very generous. And so people had been giving money to the church to give to the poor. That had a long tradition. And the deacons were in charge of the money. And so when the church started going bad, there were leaders of the church, priests who wanted access to that money. And so they kind of brought the deacons closer to themselves. And the deacons became like the pastor's assistant or bishop's assistant is what they called them. Nowadays, in some churches, the deacons are actually elders. I know of churches that don't have elders. They just have one pastor and then a board of, of deacons. Others have done almost the exact opposite. They have deacons, but they don't give the deacons any spiritual responsibility or leadership. Instead, the deacons are more like the building managers or, or janitors with a different title, which is kind of sad because God gave deacons to the church to do something huge which I think you can begin to see by maybe just thinking about the definition of the word itself. What does the word mean? The word deacon means servant, or you could say minister. We use the word minister for pastors, but the word minister is literally the word deacon. Now we think of it more like a professional title. What do you do? I'm a minister. But in the Greek, it wasn't first a, a title. It was more like a verb. It meant to minister to someone else's needs. How can I minister to you? is really how can I deacon you? <laughs> which means how can I serve you best? Which is what a deacon is really. The apostles took this ordinary word and used it to describe an office or a role in the church. A deacon is an officially recognized servant of the church. That's a start. But apparently, if you look at the word a little more closely, servant, the Greeks had a lot of words for servants. So I hear that Eskimos have a lot of words for snow because there's a lot of snow, at least there used to be there. And the Greeks had a lot of servants, and so they had many different words to describe their servants. Like sometimes you'll read in the Bible about a bond servant, and that word literally meant someone who was owned by someone else. That was the emphasis, ownership. Where this word deacon is a different word, and the emphasis is more on the good of the one being served. So a deacon wasn't just someone who served because he had to serve. A deacon was someone who wanted to serve because he loved the person he was serving, which is, which is helpful, I think, if you're unpacking what it means to be a deacon, because this is a title in 1 Timothy, but it's a title that brought to mind someone who served others because he loved them and because he loved to serve. I mean, this was his passion. They say a, a good picture of how the word deacon was used 
in everyday life was someone who waited on tables, like a waiter. You remember the image for the word elder is what? Shepherd. And for deacon, a waiter. But not a waiter at a restaurant, uh, because they're usually doing it for, for money. That's what I hated about being a waiter. It felt so fake for me, because I was not wanting to get that guy more water. I was thinking, how am I going to get the tip? But that is not the kind of waiter that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Uh, a deacon is not like a waiter waiting tables at a restaurant. Instead, he's someone waiting on tables more like a mother. So a few years ago, I kind of got into Korean dramas. Um, happy uh, Chusa Day or whatever, however you say it, but I got into Korean dramas. And uh, I learned that, at least in Korean dramas, mothers really take care of their older kids with meals at mealtime. And uh, these mothers would make the food, and they didn't stop there. They would be like sitting at the table with their older children, watching them eat the food. And it's like they're, they were watching and anticipating, uh, how are you liking the food? And the mother could get so busy just making sure everyone, everything was right for everyone else, it's like she didn't even have time to eat herself. What do you need? What do you want? Oh, you need more. Let me go get it. Which actually, thinking about it, is kind of how my grandmother was as well. She would, she, you weren't, in my family, you weren't allowed to, uh, when you went to grandma's house, you weren't allowed to leave the table until you finished everything on the plate. But the problem was, grandma kept putting more food on the, the plate. And she was a, a farmer, uh, farmer's wife, and her food wasn't always the most amazing. And I remember being so frustrated because she wouldn't listen when I said, please, no more, grandma. But she was like a deacon. If you think about the deacon's role in the church, uh, uh, and, and the elders as well, because what happens is God's given us these two roles or jobs, and uh, they're official positions, elders and deacons. So you're like set apart for this work. This is not just anyone. The, the church publicly recognizes that you are set aside for this job, which is big. This is a leadership role, both elder and deacon. But the images that God uses to describe these leadership roles are someone who's acting like a shepherd, that's the elder, and someone who's acting like a mother waiting on tables, that's the deacon. Which means while these are leadership positions, it's not like they're powerful, glorious, look at me positions. And so if you want to be a leader in the church, you can't be motivated by a desire to exalt yourself above others because that's totally not the position. Instead, it's got to be because you have a passion to serve because elders and deacons are servants. They are servant leaders. They both have that in common. The difference between elders and deacons is not actually that one is a leader and the other is a servant. The difference comes down to where God has called them to focus when it comes to serving and leading the church. And so with elders, their focus is more on the spiritual needs of the church, where deacons, even just thinking about the word itself, their focus is more on the earthly or physical needs of the people in the church. They keep the church on mission by giving elders time to focus on the word and prayer, by giving leadership and thought to the more practical, urgent, hands-on kind of details that are vital if the church is going to obey all that Jesus commanded it to do. And to show you that, let me turn with you to Acts chapter 6, from 1 Timothy 3 and this word deacon to Acts chapter 6 for a minute to answer a second question about deacons. 
Why do we need them? Why do we need deacons? Which I hope you're already able to answer, but I'm going to give you a biblical illustration. And this is pretty early on in the life of the church. And so the church is just getting started in Acts 6, which means it doesn't have a lot of structure. It was kind of a work in process. And so we're going to see this passage uses the word deacon, but it might not be that the men we read about here were officially deacons. Some people say yes, some people say no. But even if they weren't, even if it was too early for that, I think this passage is important for understanding the work of a deacon. For one, because there's, there's really nowhere else in Scripture to go, actually, if you want to know the work of a deacon. If you want to know the work of a deacon, where do you go in the Bible? The other passages, 1 Timothy and Philippians, they just tell us their qualifications. Acts 6 is the only place that even comes close to describing their work. And I think it's significant because I just don't think Jesus is going to give leaders to the church without at least hinting what they're supposed to do. If he gives us the title and all these qualifications, I think he's going to give us an idea what they're supposed to do. If they have a title, they have a role. And if they have a role, Jesus is going to reveal what that role is. And there's nowhere else we can go in Scripture besides Acts chapter 6 to see what deacons do. And so I think their role is illustrated here. In fact, I think this is the reason Paul didn't have to give much explanation as to what a deacon was supposed to do in 1 Timothy, because what happened in Acts was such a huge paradigm-forming moment in the life of the early church that everybody knew it. They just knew it. And one thing Acts shows us first, broadly, generally, is why we need deacons. If you look at verse 1, Luke writes, Now in these days, uh, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. And Hellenists were Jewish people who only spoke Greek. And culturally, they were more like Greeks. And here, of course, they're believers and part of the church, and yet they're complaining against the Hebrews, Luke says, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And we're going to talk about that problem more specifically. But for now, I want you to notice that it's a problem. And so verse 2 tells us, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, and the 12 are the apostles. And here, they're functioning like the elders in the church. In the early church, the apostles had two roles. They were apostles, which was its own role, and they were also elders. And here they're functioning more like elders in the early church, and they call the church together and they say, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And again, we're going to talk about this more specifically in a moment. But for now, I'm just wanting you to see broadly what's happening is the church got started and all they had in terms of leadership was apostles who were functioning also like elders. And at that point, everything was falling on them in terms of their leadership responsibilities. And that was impossible, even for supernaturally gifted men. And so because they didn't want to fail in their most important responsibilities, the responsibilities they were primarily given, the ministry of the word of God and prayer, they identified, along with the church, godly men, and they delegated leadership responsibility in those other areas to them, which very broadly is why the church has deacons. Because our mission is very specific. We have an important mission, and it's specific. We are witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're a hope-giving institution. That's why we are on the planet. And the hope is not in us and how we can change the world through what we do, but the hope we have to proclaim is 
in God and what God has done and will do through Jesus Christ. And we give this world hope by proclaiming the gospel and by praying for Jesus' kingdom to come. And yet there are a million things that have to happen if the church is going to do that well. And so God has the church identify godly men to help the elders do their job well by taking the responsibility to lead the church in some other necessary areas. Just generally, that's why we have deacons. As someone's explained, deacons maintain the unity of the body by giving leadership to the serving of temporal needs, like here in Acts 6. But let me get a little more specific, maybe, because uh, this is actually pretty specific here. There's a problem, but it's a specific problem. The Hellenists were complaining against the Hebrews because of what? Their, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food, which is huge. Because this is early on in the life of the church. So this is huge that there was a daily distribution of food for widows. Because the Christian church is just getting started, and yet they're already caring for the physical needs of suffering people among them. Which is one thing that set the church apart from the beginning. From the beginning. As someone said, the gospel creates in us a heart for those who are in vulnerable, difficult situations like nothing else can do. You know, there was a Greek word for Christians, and there was a Greek word for kindness. And the Greek word for kindness is very similar to the Greek word for Christian, except it has an E in it instead of a, a, an I. And uh, they used to call Christians the, the word for kindness, um, Christiani they would call them, the kindness people. And it wasn't just because it was a misspelling. It was because the early church was known for their shocking kindness, especially to people who are part of Jesus' church. God has shown us such grace, and so we want to show that grace to others in as many ways as possible, which is why we look back at the early church, and they had a passion for helping the poor. In fact, one of my favorite passages in the, in the epistles is in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul talks about this trip he took to Jerusalem to meet with the most important men in the early church. He's meeting with the so-called pillars, he calls them. And I think of that as such a theological meeting. You know, imagine what you would talk about when you talk with, like, Peter and James. And yet, at the end of Galatians chapter 2, or at the end of that story in Galatians chapter 2, Paul summarizes one big point in their discussion, Galatians 2.10, he says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so I imagine Paul getting up to leave after this long conversation, and Peter's like, Paul, Paul, remember the poor. And Paul's like, yeah, I want to. The apostles saw the importance of this, which is why there was this pattern in the Jerusalem church and the widows are just one example of that. And as Paul was going out to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the apostles wanted to make sure that this would be a continuing pattern in the Gentile church as well. Remember, Paul, remember the poor. And so the issue is not whether or not we should care for people's physical needs. The issue is how. Because their physical needs are only one way they're suffering. And ultimately, a person's physical suffering is not even the most significant kind of suffering. 
They're suffering now and they're suffering later, which lasts forever, which is why Luke tells us the apostles came up with a plan in Acts 6, verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables, or literally to deacon. Even though the apostles were spirit-empowered men, they were men, and they were limited, and so they were not able to do everything. And so they recognized that serving the physical needs of these widows could distract them from the primary way God had called them to serve, through the preaching of God's word and prayer, which is why they made a plan. Pick out seven men of good repute whom we'll appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, which is how I think it's supposed to work with elders and deacons. There's this balance that's so easy for us to get wrong. There's a, a heaven and a hell, so we would be like the most heartless, cold people in the world if we didn't seek to do everything in our power to get the gospel out. That's got to be priority number one. And yet while that's priority number one, we don't want to swing so far in the opposite direction that we start acting like now doesn't matter to Jesus. Now matters to Jesus. When I went to the mission field, I don't know how it is here, but when I went to the mission field, I found some people who it was like Anytime someone went to help someone who was hurting physically, they would be like, you better be careful. We don't want to get distracted. The church is not a soup kitchen or something. And you can kind of understand that sort of, but it can't be completely right because while eternal suffering is the greatest kind of suffering, present suffering does matter to Jesus because he loves us. And so the question is, and this is important, how do, how do we as a church help people with the way they're suffering now without somehow getting so tangled up in the complexities of it that we lose sight of our primary mission. And I think, again, part of the answer is the role of deacons. Elders are set apart to help the church in terms of the word and help us enjoy Christ's love and teach and counsel and oversee. And they help us understand what it means to be a church family and they equip us so we can serve others where deacons also help lead, but not so much in terms of the word, but in terms of service. Deacons organize the servant ministry of the church. Now that we know Christ's love, it's like it's bubbling up in us as we hear the gospel, we're desperate to show Christ's love, and deacons come alongside to help us learn how to do that well. First to one another, then to the world. They help us practically live out our lives like family. And so when we appoint deacons, we're appointing servants who you could say, one, broadly will help the elders by leading the church in areas that are not so word-centered, but are really important. And then two, specifically, help us maintain our mission of proclaiming God's word while still showing God's care and love for people who are hurting and have lots of needs which gets me uh, excited because the gospel is really glorious. And it's so, it's such a privilege to be a church because there are like so many ways that we can partner together to get the gospel out and to make the gospel look beautiful as a church. And yet there is so much that goes into doing that well, which is why we need different kinds of help. Because if you look at the work of an elder, it takes a lot of 
work for elders to do their job well and meet with people and study the scripture and prepare messages and oversee the work and counsel. And yet there's more to us really being effective and putting Jesus on display. There are practical issues. There are financial issues. There are crises. There's picking people up. There are offerings. There are people who get sick. There are people who lose their jobs. There are people who need visited. There are new visitors to the church. There's this big world out there with all kinds of different ways of loving people. And as an elder, you want that. You want to do all these different things, excellency. You want to be this family on mission, showing the love of Christ in big ways to a hurting world, And yet you think, you know what, if I go after all that, I'm not going to be able to do all the studying that I need to do and all the shepherding. And that's true. And yet all this other stuff is important because we're a family and because we're here to represent Christ and because all this other stuff makes us either do our main mission well or not well. And you're like, how do we do all that? I love being part of the church because God gives us the chance as a church to do more than we could by ourselves. And yet, to actually be able to do more, we need people who will lead us in serving. And those people are deacons. That's their job. They're servant leaders. That's what the word means. They help us make the gospel we're proclaiming here look beautiful by freeing up the elders and by leading us in loving, sacrificial service. That's why we have deacons. Now, third, who should be deacons? If we go back to 1 Timothy now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, where Paul says, deacons, likewise, in a similar way, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Which is pretty intense, that list, right? If we just look at it quickly all those qualities. That's a serious list, which shows that this is like a serious job. The church serving well is serious business. It's such serious business that we can't just have anybody lead us in this way. We need men of character to lead us because the deacons deal with practical matters. We might be tempted to think that it's not very important, but even if you remember in Acts where you had that one group of widows complaining against the other group of widows, You might think that was just about food, but it was really a moment because what would happen to the early church if that got out of hand? Just think about how that would have slowed down the work of the early church. It wasn't a small issue. And even now, while the work that deacons do is different, it's not small or unimportant, which is why the qualities that make someone able to be a deacon are not that different from those that are required for an elder, really. If you look at verses 2 through 7 in chapter 3, And then verses 8 through 12, they're really similar. In fact, the only major requirement that's different is that elders have to be able to teach. Where deacons may be able to teach, like if Stephen came to our church, somehow I would definitely want to listen to him preach. Deacons may be able to teach, but they don't have to be because it's not technically a teaching office, but it is a leading office, which is why a person has to be qualified to hold it. 
And the first quality that Paul gives us that needs to be true of the deacon is dignified. Deacons likewise must be dignified, which means basically a person worthy of respect, not someone who's silly and immature, someone who's honorable. You need to be a person who is deep, who takes life seriously, who's dignified. And if we keep reading, Paul identifies more qualities that must be true of the deacon's life. And maybe he's helping us understand the way an honorable person lives, actually. He's not double-tongued. In other words, he's not someone who's insincere, who says one thing and means another. You know how some people, they have a very difficult time being straight with you. It's like they hide their thoughts with their words. They have an agenda. They always have an agenda. And of course, these are not the kind of people that you want leading the church because you'll never be able to count on them, especially if you're helping the hurting. Because the hurting are depending on what you say. And so if your word doesn't carry weight, it's going to do a lot of damage. It's going to, when you speak to someone who's in a crisis, what you say better be what's real because it's going to lodge in their hearts. It's something they're going to hang onto. I remember when Marta had... uh, Uh, cancer, and we would go to the oncologist, how careful that man was with his words, because you're at the oncologist looking for any hope. And so our oncologist, I could tell he was a wise man. He would not say more than was possible for him to say. And so I was trying to read hope into his words as many different ways as possible, and yet it was sometimes difficult because he was so careful. And deacons too, are working with hurting people in all sorts of crisis situation. And so they have to be the kind of people whose words are sincere and true. And then Paul says next, they must not be addicted to much wine, which I I feel like that should be obvious, but it isn't always. We we need leaders who are self-controlled, who have control over their mouths first, what they say, and, and also what they drink. And I don't know, maybe this is a temptation when you're working with people who are hurting, or maybe you're like more involved in service-related areas of church life because there can be a lot of pressure and discouragement. And so maybe there will be some people who are tempted to look for a way out by getting drunk. And that's not acceptable when it comes to leadership in the church. A, a leader can't be the kind of person who gets drunk. And they can't be greedy either. That's third. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain, which is going to be especially important when it comes to deacons because they're going to be involved in a lot of the practical matters of the church that have to do with money. And I'll tell you what's so sad is that, unfortunately, throughout history, people have used the practical problems of others over and over as a means of making money for themselves. So you go overseas, a lot of NGOs are really sad (laughs) because they're money-making businesses, really, which also makes it difficult for the people who are living there because they get involved in those NGOs as a way of making money for themselves as well, which is why it's vital that we appoint leaders who are basically content with what God's given, because that's the opposite of being greedy. They need to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And verse 9, Paul says, they must hold the mystery of the faith. Like with elders, there's character and there's also conviction. And mystery is a word Paul uses to describe the revelation we received in the gospel. And so he's saying he's got to hold on to the gospel, which is important because as we're talking about doing and as we're talking about service, we might think that it doesn't matter so much if deacons don't really know God's word well, as long as they're nice. 
But Paul's saying we need men who know and love the truth as it's revealed in God's word to lead the church even in practical matters. And it's not just that these men can say the right things about the gospel either because in verse 9 Paul says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, meaning that deep down when nobody's around, they're all about Jesus. And we need to take these qualities here seriously because the church has gotten itself into trouble sometimes because there's so much to do and there's so much need out there that it's tempting just to to want to recognize anyone who's willing to help without doing much evaluating. And especially with the kind of work that deacons have to do because it's difficult, it's messy, it's complicated. And the reality is there's there's often not a lot of people who are even interested in, in doing it. And so sometimes, if someone's even a little bit willing, we're quick to put them in positions of leadership. And this has happened with missionaries all the time. Sometimes there are these men and women who are sent out who don't really know or love the truth or even have a lot of wisdom. And so when they get involved in these messy, complicated situations, they end up doing more damage than good, which is why Paul's like, no, Make sure they really know the gospel and believe it. And even further, he says in verse 10, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Which is like, wow. I mean, there's supposed to be a time where we make sure the deacons really know what they're doing, and if they pass the test, it's only then that we appoint them to lead us as deacons. And I guess, I guess I'm just hoping you're seeing this as a big deal. Deacons. It matters. It matters who leads us. And you know, Paul's not even done yet. Verse 11, which if you look down is where there is a little bit of controversy because it says, their wives likewise must be dignified and not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And technically, in the Greek, the word wives uh, is also the word women. So that's an interpretation when you read that, wives. It, It literally could be women likewise. And so you have to figure out from the context what women Paul is talking about. He he, he can't be talking about all women because that wouldn't make sense. That would be too random. So what women is he referring to? And basically there are uh, two options. So some people think he's talking about deaconesses, women deacons. It's like he's been talking about men deacons and then now women deacons. And then he comes back in verse 12 to men deacons again. Others think he's talking about wives, the wives of deacons. And the thing is, I don't know, honestly. There are arguments both ways. I go back and forth. There were times when I thought it was wives. Right now, I think the arguments for deaconesses is probably stronger because it's just, you look at it, it's just women likewise. And the word likewise kind of links it to what he said about deacons in verse 8. And they don't talk about the wives of elders, so why would they only talk about the wives of deacons? Then in Romans 16, Paul calls a woman named Phoebe uh, a deacon or a deaconess. And historically, actually, if you look back at church history, which is sometimes good, sometimes bad, but historically, there were uh, women deacons in the early church, for sure. So I'm saying I would definitely be in a church that had deaconesses, if they understood deaconesses as helping the church in areas of service. I don't think there's anything a deaconess that would do that would violate any other scriptural teaching about men or women. 
And you know, at the same time, even if Paul doesn't mean deaconesses, and he does just mean deacons' wives here, they still clearly have a role, the wives, and there are even qualifications they had to measure up to as well, like being dignified and not being a slander, a slanderer and being sober-minded and faithful in all things, because being a deacon is a big deal. And in verse 12, Paul comes back to the male deacons, which is probably the hardest thing about interpreting verse 11 as deaconesses, actually, because it's awkward that Paul would go from talking about deacons to deaconesses and then back to deacons. That's the one part that I get confused about. But he does, and he focuses on the way they lead their families, saying, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, managing their children and their households well. And so how you lead your family is an essential test for whether you are able to lead the church, which is important to hear when it comes to ministry because you meet some people sometimes who are so concerned about people they don't know and are willing to make sacrifices for all these people they don't know that they're ignoring the very people God's placed in their home and really ruining their family. And I think with deacons who are doers, because they love doing, it's especially important that they get their priorities straight and they're faithful to fulfill the responsibilities God's given them to lead their families before they step up to start leading the church in service. I, I really praise the Lord for doers. You know some people that are doers and you're like, wow, this person, you can call them up at 3 a.m. and they're like showing up to change the tire on your car with a smile. There are people out there in the world like that and we praise God for them. But one challenge sometimes those doers face is that they get so busy doing for others that they don't take care of their own family, which again is why this qualification is so important because the deacon's work is so important. He needs to be a man of character. And I can definitely understand someone reading what Paul says about deacons and what Luke tells us about the role of deacons and thinking to themselves that they would want to be a deacon. I, uh, I always say if I wasn't an elder, I would definitely want to be a deacon. Because if you look down at verse 13, there is this big blessing to being a deacon. And that's our fourth question, why be a deacon? Paul gives two reasons you would want to be a deacon. And first, it's because there's a reward for deacons personally. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. And the word good standing comes from the word for step. And it was a word used for stepping above someone else, or it could even be translated pedestal. And he's saying that when someone serves well as a deacon, it's like God puts them on this pedestal, which sounds kind of funny because you're like, isn't that wrong to put someone on a pedestal? It's wrong if you're putting yourself on a pedestal. But it's not wrong if God's putting you on a pedestal. And, and this is actually just the way the Christian life works. As you humble yourself and you deny yourself for the good of others, it ends up being good for you. That's the biblical pattern. Humble yourself and God will exalt you, which is what happened with Jesus. He did not come to be served. He did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon, to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus went as low as you could go to serve us, and what happened is that he was glorified. And the thing is, that's not just the way it works with Jesus. That's the way it works with us. As a person focuses on lowering himself and trying to go as low as 
he possibly can to serve others, what happens is the opposite. God lifts him up. Like the deacon here, he gains a, a good standing. Sometimes before men, but definitely before God. Because this is God's definition of greatness. Also, Paul says, if you look down, he gains great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, which is pretty sweet because confidence is assurance. It's boldness. And so what Paul's saying is that as you step out to serve Jesus and give your life to serve Jesus, you find yourself growing in your confidence in the scriptures and God and the gospel. And this is just a funny thing about the Christian life. You want to grow in faith, obey. <laughs> because the Christian life is meant to be lived. And so the more self-centered and the more uh, comfort-driven you are, the more you doubt. And the more sacrificial you are, the more your faith in Jesus grows, which is part of what makes being part of a de being a deacon in the church such an amazing opportunity because deacons have to make all kinds of sacrifices to help the church. But all those sacrifices are going to be worth it because God stuffed his commands with kindness. And as the deacon steps out and serves, he's going to find that he becomes a person who's worthy of others' respect. And each little act of obedience is going to grow his confidence in Jesus. And as a result, he's going to become more and more effective and have a greater and greater impact, which is what we want as individuals and as a church. We want to make an impact as a local church. We're not just here to be here. Jesus wants to use the local church in seriously big ways to glorify himself. God has big plans for the local church. And one of the reasons someone would want to be a deacon is because he understands not only the benefit of being a deacon in his own life, but also the opportunity he'll have as a deacon to help the local church advance God's great gospel plan. And so if you want to be part of something big, like I'm talking eternally big, not just human perspective big, eternally big, you want to be part of what God's doing through the local church. And you can be part because we all have a part to play. There's so much to do. And we need help doing it, which is why we need leaders. And so there might be some of you who have the gift of teaching and studying and shepherding and counseling. And you may want to be trained so that you can be an elder. That's why we're having that Aspire class tonight. But, you know, it may be that God's calling others of you to help us a little differently because there's just a lot that goes into being a church. I mean, our mission isn't complicated, but doing it well is. And we're working hard to provide the best teaching that we can. I know I'm just ordinary, we're all just ordinary, but we're working hard <laughs> to try to give you the best teaching that we can give you, to speak God's word clearly and accurately. But obviously, that message is going to be much more attractive when it's backed up by action. And so I want people to be saying, you know, you go to Cornerstone Bible Church, you're going to hear God's word. It, it, that guy may be a little bit boring or whatever, but you're going to hear God's word. Well, what do you think is going to happen if they come and they hear God's word, but they go away feeling like nobody loves them? Or if they come and they have problems and they feel like nobody cares about them? Or if they look at the local church and it's, it looks like we're, we're not looking out for each other as a family? Or if they look at us and we're selfish and we don't show the love of Christ to strangers? Or if we're preaching, but we're just totally overlooking all these details that are really distracting as they're seeking to hear what God's saying? Obviously, we know God can still use his word because he's amazing. But what you can imagine happening is that after a while, they stop coming. 
And maybe instead they start going to other places where they don't hear God's word as clearly, but they feel like they have people who care for them or, or help them, or it's just easier to understand how to be involved and to serve, which is really sad. And it's part of why we need deacons. Because what is a deacon? A deacon is a servant who leads us in service. That's really why there are deacons, because there's a lot to do, and because God cares about the needy, the spiritually needy, and the physically needy. And he's put the church on the planet to proclaim the gospel and to do good. And deacons enable the elders to focus on serving the spiritually needy by teaching God's word by helping the church fulfill all its other responsibilities that come with us living as a family. And specifically, by making sure the needy, poor, and suffering in our churches are cared for in a Christian manner. Who should be deacons? Because it's a big job, we have to look at the qualifications Paul gives. Men and women of character. And they need character because even though it's an important job, it's really humbling. It's serving, which is not how greatness works in the world serving, going as low as you possibly can. So who would want this job? Why would anyone want this job? You want this job because there are benefits personally and there are benefits corporately for us as a church. And so will you pray with me that God gives us deacons and that God helps us appoint the right deacons and that God uses those deacons to help us as a church fulfill our responsibility because the work of deacons is vital to our life and to our witness because deacons are going to help us follow in the footsteps of our savior who was the first deacon who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many let's pray lord uh, some of us we love details others of us we don't like them some of us like to think about structure and things like that others of us are like please this is too much. But Lord, we are thinking about this because your church matters and the gospel matters. And we really want to be a church that's not just doing our own thing, being comfortable, having a nice life, according to American standards. We want to be a church that exists for your glory and that is effective in proclaiming the gospel and being the kind of church you want us to be. And so we know to do that, we need to listen to what you say about how leadership works. And so we just ask, God, that you would help us. Help us to identify godly elders and help us to identify godly deacons and bless those deacons in their work. Help them to help us really show your love to one another and to the world in such a way that people, people are asking themselves, why are those, why are those people so different? Um, I want to hear the message that church teaches. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.